It was over 2,000 years ago that a, a former Roman slave turned philosopher named Publius Syrus wrote this, made this simple observation. Money alone sets the world in motion. Now, you might know this expression today as money makes the world go round. And literally, in some respects, it does, because it was actually this past Thursday, October 12th, 1492, right, that Columbus reached the quote-unquote new world, an expedition ostensibly to connect trade routes between east and west, and yet, if you know much about your history and the desires of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, it was finally an expedition about money and about enriching the Spanish state. Money is all over the news as the stock markets hit new highs on Friday. Right, so many of our major news stories of late, whether you think of Brexit or the Iran nuclear deal or even Obamacare subsidies or the failure of the New York Attorney General to prosecute Harvey Weinstein. All about money. All about money. It's the fuel of our financial markets. It's the currency by which our countries run. It's what will drive some individuals to the altar and sadly will drive some of those same individuals back to the judge's bench. So many struggle to live with money and yet so many struggle to live without it. I think it was Woody Allen who humorously quipped, money is better than poverty if only for financial reasons. Money costs much. I think that was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Money costs much. All right, so as Christians this morning, how do we even think about money? Is money an, an evil to be avoided, or is it, it is a good that Christians are to exploit? How do we think about our wealth? How are we to use our wealth wisely? Because if you know much about the Bible, the Bible actually speaks a lot about money. By some measures, Jesus talks about money more than any other topic, save the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, he famously warns against storing up treasures on earth. Quote, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. In other words, whether or not we're talking the teachings of Jesus, or you think back to ACDC, money talks. Money talks. What we do with our wealth says a lot about who or what we worship. So I wonder what, this morning, what does your own attitude toward money say about what you worship? If we were to take maybe your checkbook register this morning, or take your most recent credit card statement, and if we were to post it up on these screens and go through it, what would it say about you? What would it say about what you value, what you cherish, what you hold fast to? Would it match up to the own profession of your mouth? I think these are just some of the questions this morning that we want to think about as we reflect upon our own wealth and what it has to say about what we worship. But I want us to do this this morning a bit differently. So if you've been coming regularly for some time, if you're a member of this church, you know that normally we work through a section of the Bible together, we work through a particular passage, and the point of the message is the point of that passage. That's what we call expositional preaching, where you expound upon a particular biblical text. It might be just a few verses, it could be a whole book, but in expositional preaching, a particular text sets the agenda. Right? I don't come to the Bible and say, what do I feel like talking about, and try to rip a few verses out of context to support it. No, we let the Bible speak for itself, expositional preaching. But every now and then, we want to break from that practice, and we'll do something different. We'll do what we call a topical message, where we take an issue, and then we seek to look across the Bible's teaching, sort of summarizing and systematizing that teaching, and then presenting it in a way that's faithful to the Scriptures and teaches us about that particular topic. Back in the spring, we did that about gender and sexuality. This morning, we're going to do it just a one-off on money, on money. And now I recognize some of you, when the pastor stands up and says he's going to talk about money, you start to roll your eyes, you're looking for the exit signs, you're like, oh no, here we go again. Pastor's talking about money. And the skeptics and some of you who may be cynics are thinking he's doing it because he wants to fill the church coffers. 
or because he's got some new building campaign, or because we're running behind, perhaps, on our own budget of giving. And so what he's really doing is he's here to, to drum up and to cheerlead support for the budget. You know, I'm here to call you to faith challenges and to plant your seed money or something like that and, and resort to other gimmicks and forms of guilt. But I want you to know that's actually not what I'm here to do at all. Not at all. I'm not here this morning talking about this because we're behind in our giving. In fact, I think our giving is right on target. I'm not here on behalf of some capital campaign, nor is this the start of an annual budget talk where you're going to hear this every year, right? In my first two years at UBC, I've never talked on money. I've never actually preached a sermon on money in my life. Now, you may know that by the end of the sermon. It may be revealed. I don't know. <laughs> I don't anticipate it doing it anytime again soon. I'm not talking here about money because I'm finally concerned about the bottom line of this church. I'm here because one day you're going to stand before Jesus and you're going to give an account as to every penny that he's entrusted to you. And as one of your shepherds, I care deeply about how that moment is going to go for you. I don't want you to be ashamed. I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready for that day, to have thought through these things well. Because what finally matters is not the fiscal standing of this particular church. What matters is our own collective faithfulness as we stand before the Lord. Now, there's a ton that I could say this morning about money in the scriptures, far more than we'll cover in one message, perhaps far more than you wished I would have covered this morning. But what I want to do is first reflect upon a simple basic truth from which will flow one necessary implication, and then we're going to think about some practical applications. So that's kind of the flow. Truth to necessary implication to some applications. And that, that'll, that'll be the flow for this morning. Okay, so one great thing, right? most of us, I trust, are Americans. We've grown up in this country. is that we actually have this rich tradition here in America of free markets and of private property. Right? Ownership has been the engine behind the American dream that many of us have known and experienced and loved. We think of home ownership, for example, as driving much of that engine. But it's not just our homes. Right? We claim ownership of our ideas in the form of intellectual property, ownership of our bodies. We claim ownership of our own digital presence even. Ownership, you could say, is as American as apple pie. But one of the things we find when we come to the Bibles that we're actually confronted with a starkly different reality. God owns everything. That's the first truth I want you to see this morning. That's where I want us to begin. God owns everything. He owns everything. And he's the owner of all things because he's created all things. If you know Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2, the earth and everything in it the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord because he laid its foundation on the seas and he established it on the rivers. Right When Job is struggling with all this has taken place in his life and all that he's lost and he demands that God walk up and take the stand and he answer for his actions. Do you remember what God responds to Job? Job 41.11 God says, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. That's God's response to Job. Everything under heaven belongs to me. And if God owns everything, my friends, if he indeed owns everything, you realize what that means. You own nothing. Finally, you, me, we all own nothing. We don't own what we think we own. Now, when you buy a house, right, one of the things, if you bought a house, you know, you're required to buy title insurance just to ensure there's no previous owners that could make a legitimate claim to the property. So think of what you own this morning and think of everything you have in your possession as having a sort of a title to it, some kind of title to it. Your home, your cars, maybe even a degree, your children, your own body. Part of what the Bible is teaching you is that all those things that you think are titled in your name, well, those titles aren't really clean. 
There's a pre-existing claim. If you dig through all the past paperwork, if you dig deep enough behind your claim, always lies God's claim as the original owner, as the true owner of all that is and of all that exists. So that vehicle you paid off last month, just for example, perhaps, those bank accounts that have your name at the top, that home that you've lived in 30 years, all the clothes you may have in your closet, none of it is finally yours. It feels like it's ours, but the Bible's teaching is that at the end of the day, none of it is finally ours. Everything we have belongs to God. And friends, if we begin there and if we grasp that, that will radically reorient how we look at our wealth. When we realize our wealth isn't ours, it's not fundamentally ours, it's a complete paradigm shift. It, for one, it guards us against pride, against pride, for we can't lay claim to anything that we think is ours. It frees us to be generous, to be generous with others, for, for nothing we own is finally ours. But that's not how we like to think about our wealth. Right? Perhaps we've worked hard for it. We've gone to school for years. We've labored. We've received promotions or whatever it might be. We've saved diligently. And we think of it as our wealth. It's, it's our money. We've earned it. We think we have a right to do with it as we please. And we so often resent the right of anyone to tell us otherwise. But imagine for a moment just hypothetically, that, that David and Imelda McClinton were going out of town, and they said, Brad, we want you to come up to our house, and we want you to watch over our home for us. Take care of it while we're away. And so they, they leave me the keys to the house. Maybe they, they leave me some extra cash in case something goes wrong, or I can fix and help repair it, which would be worthless for me to do, but I could try, right? If you know me. They tell me to make myself comfortable in their home, and, and I do. I make myself wonderfully comfortable in their home. I raid the fridge. I crash David's study. I have a grand old time, throw a grand old party up there in their home. And then say maybe a month later, the McClintons come back. Like they've hiked Everest. They've done wonderful work. Who knows what it is? They come back a month later, and they show up at their front door, and I've locked the door. They're like, what are you doing? And I just look at them incredulously. What do you mean, what am I doing? What are you doing? It's my house. I got the keys. I've been living here. I've been taking care of the place. It's my house. I hope you see in that moment, I'd be an utter idiot. It'd be utterly foolish of me to make such a claim. Right? And the police, no doubt, if they took me down to the station, they'd have a lot more to tell me about my own actions and decisions. At face value, such an action of mine would appear utterly foolish. But that's part of how we treat everything we claim that we own in this life. Like it's ours. Like nobody else has a prior claim to it or can tell us what to do with it. I mean, if you think of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, this is what gets him so upset. He couldn't, he couldn't accept that God held a deeper claim to all that he owned. And he was unwilling to part with it unwilling to recognize God's claim upon his wealth. Right, as Ray Lippig read from 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into the world, we can not take anything out of the world. God owns everything. That's the truth we, where we have to start from, but it brings us to an implication. If God owns everything and we own nothing, the implication of that, to our second point, implication is we're to steward our wealth, not store it up. Right? We're to steward our wealth, not to store it up. So think, if you will, back to my hypothetical example of the, of the McClintons. Right? I've gone up to their house. They've left me to take care of what is theirs, right? to watch over it, to protect it, to care for it, to keep it. All along while I was living there, it was never mine. I was meant to steward it, to steward it. A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth and charged with the responsibility of managing that in the owner's best interests. That's all a steward does. They're entrusted with managing another's wealth and stewarding that wealth in the owner's best interests. Not in my best interests, but in the owner's best interests. And that's, friends, that's what all of us are. 
We're stewards. If you think back to Genesis 1 and 2, think back to the garden when God placed Adam and Eve there. The garden wasn't Adam and Eve's to do with as they pleased. No, they were given in the garden specific instructions, right, to rule over it, to care for it. Theirs was a stewardship. It was a stewardship, right? They weren't the owners. They were the managers of all that God had entrusted to them. You know, that's one of the reasons why when Israel was given the promised land, God forbade them from selling it. Ever wonder why that is? Why, why would God make it so clear they cannot sell this land? He says in Leviticus 25, 23, this land is not to be permanently sold because it's mine. And you are only aliens and temporary residents on my land. Right? It's the Lord's land. It's his. It's not ours to do with as we please. Right? They weren't owners. They were, they were the tenants. And they lived in that land at God's good pleasure until they possessed an even better inheritance, as Hebrews remind us, as they longed even for a heavenly inheritance. That's what that land was meant to point them to. It's meant to point us to. I think maybe this is seen nowhere more clearly than the parable that Jesus tells of the talents. The parable of the talents. If you've got a Bible, let me just encourage you for a moment to turn to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. I don't know the page number in the Red Bible, but if you don't have a Bible with you, we have some Red Bibles there. You look about three-quarters of the way in. You're going to get past the Old Testament. You're going to find the New Testament. The first book is Matthew, 25 chapters in. If you're ever confused, I don't know if you know this, your Bibles have a table of contents. Feel no embarrassment. It doesn't matter who's sitting next to you, staring at whether or not you know the books of the Bible. Just open it up, look at it, turn to Matthew 25, all right? Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. In this parable that Jesus tells, this parable of the talents, we read that there's a man who's, who's going away on a journey, so to speak. And so he calls his servants, and he entrusts them with his property. And to one man, he gives five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent. Now a talent, a sizable sum of money, about $600,000 in, in today's terms. And notice the owner determines what they receive. And in the parable, the owner clearly represents God. You know, one of the things we find here and in the rest of the scriptures, God distributes wealth as he pleases. I know we like to take credit for the fact that we're creative, right? We're smarter, we worked harder. But the reality is, there are a lot of people who worked a lot harder and were a lot smarter than us who died with a lot less in their bank accounts, right? God distributes wealth so often as he pleases. But the important thing is not that what we've been given, but the, the parable turns on how the stewards steward what they've been given. And that's what the parable's about. Each servant been entrusted with the stewardship. And the first two, who were given five and two, if you know the story, they double it. They double that stewardship, and they're commended by their master. Verse 21 and 23 both read the same. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will make you faithful over much. A little just goes to show how much wealth the master had, what he bestows upon his children. I'll set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. But the last servant, if you know the story, he didn't steward what had been trusted to him. But he took that old mattress approach, right? He sort of buried it, he just tucked it away. In this case, we read, verse 18, that he went and he dug in the ground and what did he do? He hid his master's money. He didn't even bother to put it in the bank, maybe even earn some interest, it seems for the steward, even that was a bit too much work. The master wasn't worth it. It was too much of an inconvenience upon the steward's time. And for that, the master condemns the steward in verse 26 and calls him a wicked and a slothful servant. And as the others don't seem to have that same approach to the master, they joyfully and obediently Right? And, and proficiently, they labor on his behalf. They know his character. And one of the things we see when we come to the scriptures is that God didn't merely teach us what to do with our wealth. God showed us what to do with our wealth. You know, in the call to worship from 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, 
might become rich. In love, Jesus humbled himself, and he took the form of a suffering servant. He obeyed the Father perfectly and all that he did. And then he died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners, the one who is infinitely rich, becoming poor there on the cross, so that all of those who would turn from their sin and from the love of this world and for the love of all things that they think will bring them contentment but always leave them dry. He says, for you will turn from your sin and trust in me. You can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can be rich, not materially, not in this life, but spiritually. Right? Not temporally, but eternally. You can be rich in me. So if you've come this morning and you're thinking, oh my word, I come to church for the first time and they're preaching on money. That just fits every stereotype I've ever thought. I just want you to know that's actually not the case. But even more to the point, if you're coming this morning, you're not a follower of Christ. What I want you to see even from this text is that God's not calling you this morning to give to him. That's not what God fundamentally wants from you. He doesn't need your money. What he's calling you to see is the gift that he's first held out to you in Jesus Christ. The one who was rich and yet for our sakes became poor so that in him we might become rich. That's the Jesus I want you to know. That's the Jesus the the scriptures hold out to us. And if you've come and you have questions about that, feel free to talk to me. I'm always up here after the service. We have folks at the doors, someone who brought you. We'd love to chat with you more about what it would mean to follow Christ. But these two were obedient to what had been entrusted to them. They were productive. They waited for his return. And they mark one who's been forgiven by Christ, a love for God. A love for God would certainly include a, a way in which we serve him with all that we own. Right? First Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. But we do this motivated by how God has loved us, but also recognizing at the same time that one day we're going to give an account before God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, God has set up terms for us as to how we're to think about our wealth. He's entrusted to us sort of instructions and, and Proverbs is full of all kind of counsel for us. Right? We're called in Proverbs with our wealth not to be diligent, rather to be diligent and not lazy. Right, to be wise with it, not foolish. To be humble and not proud. To be generous and not stingy. To be honest and not deceitful. To be righteous with it, not sinful. We're to seek counsel, we're told, with our wealth in the Proverbs. We're to practice self-denial when it comes to our own wealth. All those commands, because wealth, if you haven't figured this out, can be deeply dangerous. Right? Psalm 62.10, placed no trust in oppression or, or false hope in robbery. If wealth increases, don't set your heart on it. Or Proverbs 23, 4 to 5, don't wear yourself out to get rich. You know better. Stop. As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears. It makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky. Right? Wealth can be deceiving. It can, it can f- be fleeting. And when we make wealth our end, wealth can become spiritually destructive. And we read 1 Timothy 6.10 earlier in the service. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some of you have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, when money is our goal, it becomes toxic. It's like a spiritual acid that just eats away at our own commitment to Christ Because it means we're putting our faith in something else. We're trying to trust in God and something else. Which the Bible says we can't do, right? We can't serve both God and money. So money is merely a tool. Right? And tools don't do much good if they're sitting in a toolbox and never used. No, they're to be used they're to be employed. We don't, we don't want to merely store them away like the rich man does in Luke 12, just continues to build bigger barns to store his wealth. We want to be rich toward God by stewarding what he's given us, not merely stockpiling all that he's given to us. Because if you think about money, you know, money can, 
It can buy you a bed, it can't buy you sleep. It can buy you a bed, it can't buy you sleep. It can buy you a house, of course it can do that, it can't buy you a home. It can buy you amusements, it can't buy you happiness. It can buy you sex, it can't buy you love. It can buy you religion, it can't buy you salvation. It can buy you a passport to hell, it can't deliver you to heaven. Money doesn't have power to do those things. It simply doesn't have the power. It was Ben Franklin who noted, money never made a man happy, nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, money creates one. Right? Those, are the, those are the thoughts of a non-Christian. But in God's common grace, I think he's exactly right. We don't need to be a Christian to understand that. Money is a terrible master, but it's an excellent servant. It can be an excellent servant. And we're kept from money's mastery when we put it to use for the good of others. And that's what I want us to think about lastly as we turn into our third point. So we thought about the truth, God owns everything. And the implication, if that's the case, we're to steward our wealth. We're we're not to merely store it up for ourselves. And so the application I want us to think about for a few minutes is that we're to then invest that in Christ's kingdom and not our own. That wealth God has entrusted to us that we're to steward, we're to invest in Christ's kingdom and not our own. You know, no investor would pour money down a ruined enterprise, something that is clearly doomed. You won't throw good money after bad, you know, as they say. And yet we know this world. What's the destiny of this world? It's doomed. It's why Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For there where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So we want to deploy God's capital that he's entrusted to us in ways that will reap rewards for eternity. That's what we want to think about our money. We want to make such capital investments in the kingdom that enable us to avoid the dangers of wealth. And we do that by wisely giving it away. By giving it away. Now, not giving all of it away. Okay, we don't give all of it away, of course. We're called to support ourselves in the scriptures, to provide housing and and food and clothing. We're called to invest in our marriages, in our own families, to support them and our children. Right, if you remember Mark 7, the Pharisees actually boast that they've given great gifts to God at the neglect of their parents. And Jesus condemns them for it. He doesn't condone that. He condemns them for it. As Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. So I think as we think about making investments and thinking about how we're to give our money away, part of what we've got to do is, as Christians, we've got to think about, okay, what's a sustainable lifestyle? What's a sustainable lifestyle for me? You know, what what are the basic needs I have? And I think we begin here. We begin here, recognizing first that God never calls us to spend more than we make. He doesn't call us to live beyond our means. I just read recently that our consumer debt in this country has just topped 12.8 trillion. And if you know much about what happened in 2008 and the crisis we hit in the Great Recession there, the top it hit was 12.7. So our consumer debt, we were so worried about 10 years ago, well, we've just surpassed that once again. Our consumer debt's a big issue. And I mention that because when we're a slave to such debts, the Bible has a lot to say. We become its slave. We are subject to its frustration, to its poverty, to its misery. I don't usually watch Saturday Night Live, but there's a great Saturday Night Live skit with Steve Martin. Maybe you've seen it. But Steve Martin is sitting there at the table with his wife, and they're discouraged over their financial situation. And some guy walks onto the set, and he's got a program to solve their financial woes. And it's a money management book called Don't Buy Stuff You Can't Afford. That's the guy's financial management program. And Steve Martin, this is all complicating and and very confusing for him. He keeps asking, but what if I want something and I don't have the money? And the guy says, you can't buy it. 
And Steve Martin looks down, and he scratches his head, and he's like, all right, but, but what if I really want something and I don't have the money? And he says, nope, you can't buy it. But what if I think I'll have the money one day, now can I buy it? And he says, no, you can't buy something with money you don't have. It's all in my book. It's one page. <laughs> don't buy stuff with money you don't have. It's a hilarious little skit. It's very short, and it's clean. It's funny. And it seems so simple. That's why we're laughing, and yet it's not that easy, is it? Right? We watch our friends. We see what's happening. We know the, the pull of our own, desi- of our own desires. But in the end of the day, if we spend beyond our means, it will not go well for us. In the end, you're just really robbing from yourself, and you're certainly robbing from God. That's not a good thing to do. But you know, one of the other advantages of determining a lifestyle is that it it helps ensure that if you happen in God's grace to know increases in your income, it ensures if you set a lifestyle that those increases in income don't necessarily translate to equal increases in your own cost of living. Right, so if you receive a $10,000 raise and you have a perfectly sustainable lifestyle, should that mean $10,000 more of expenses? Well, there's not a really good logical reason why that should be the case, and setting a lifestyle will help you with that. Now listen, one caveat here. Sometimes in setting a lifestyle, Christians assume that what God wants from them is like asceticism. Like they're going to be like John the Baptist or some other historical Christian figure. They're going to live on as little as possible. It won't be locusts, maybe ramen noodles, and, you know, it won't be camel's hair and what have you, but it'll be goodwill clothing, whatever it might be. And, like, that's what it would mean. But I think part of honoring God with all we have, given all of our responsibilities, is that we're going to want to invest some money in things like marriages, in families, in others. So, yes, having a date night might cost you three times more than having that meal at home. But if that's going to materially and significantly bless your marriage, and if you're a husband, you're an idiot if you don't figure that out and work that into your budget. Right? God gave us marriage. He gave us food. He gave us all kinds of gifts, 1 Timothy 4, 3, to be received with thanksgiving. Right? We glorify God by enjoying all that he has made, and that may mean a trip to Roost Chris to get a steak sometimes. That's absolutely fine. I don't know how David Platt feels about it, but I think the Bible says it's fine. So you're going to need to set a budget to do this, though. And realize a budget is simply a tool telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. That's all a budget does. A budget enables you to tell your money where to go instead of wondering, where did it go? And budgets are great because they promote communication. Right? We want to know where we're spending our money and why. They promote contentment. You know what? I've got money in this category. I can buy the pair of jeans. I have money. I can buy the nicer jeans. I haven't bought anything else. It's okay. Right? It promotes contentment. We don't feel guilty in such cases. Now, of course, some of your budget has to go toward meeting future needs, like in the form of saving and retirement. I think it was Will Rogers who famously said, the fastest way to double your money is to fold it in half and put it in your back pocket. Right? So that's part of what we have to do with the budget. But I think in all of it, one of the things we need to do as a body of believers is we have to be transparent as we talk about such things. You know, I was taught that money is one of those topics you never discuss, sort of impolite company. And if you're talking about strangers, of course, but if we're talking about the household of believers, if we're talking about our family together as a church, why would we be reluctant to talk about money with one another when Jesus seemed to talk to us so much about it? I think if Jesus talks a lot about it, it's because he assumes we can be pretty stupid with it. So we need to talk to one another. We need to invite one another into our conversations, right? We talk about our sins. We talk about our struggles. We talk about our fears. We're open with those things. That's great. We should continue to be. We should strive all the more to be and not to be judgmental with another who struggles, right? But to treat them gently and to correct them gently if necessary, as the scriptures call us to. But we should be there exercising grace and the clarity of the scriptures. But we need to be doing this with our money, with our money too, You know, why not bring your checkbook to your life group meeting and say, hey, I'm not sure this makes any sense because it's not that easy and it's not feeling very good. Do you guys got any counsel for me? Here's my credit card statement. Help me out. You may think I'm crazy, but that'd be a great thing to do, to have such a conversation if in a life group or in some other setting. You know, we're not called to fear man finally. We're called to fear God. 
God alone judges the heart. And the reality is one day all of us will be handling over our finances to Jesus. And he'll, he'll be looking at them. And I'm going to suggest it would be wise maybe to have another person that you respect look at them first and help you think about whether or not you're thinking of them well before you wait for that day. Now, once we've done these, I think set a sustainable lifestyle, right? We've got a budget. We know what we're doing. I think we're free to give away everything else. Give away the rest. So I want to think and just close our time by thinking about why, what, kind of where and how. Why, what, where, and how of our giving. And I want to think about particularly as a church family, and I'm doing that for two reasons. For two reasons. First, because I don't think many Christians are actually taught particularly well on the subject. People think the pastor's talking about money, which means he's going to talk about a tithe, which means 10% conversation over. I actually think that entirely misunderstands the Bible's teaching. And this is the point entirely. But second, I think as a body we need this teaching. Now, I don't know what any one of you individually give. I have no idea, and I intentionally don't know. I don't want to know. I don't actually trust myself. I'm here to shepherd you, regardless of that, if you're a member of this church. I don't want your lack of giving or your excessive giving to alter how I might shepherd you. So I just, your elders stay out of that. We try to stay out of that as much as we possibly can. I don't know. But one of the things as elders, as we look at a budget and try to set a top-line number for 2018 and work with the Finance Committee, is we've got to look at budget trends and, and giving trends. And as we dug a bit deeper, one of the things we found is that about 50% of our members don't give. Now, we have some absent non-attending members. We have college students. So if you sort of dig down into sort of active membership, which is really redundant, but this is called active membership, people who are regularly here, including college students, that number is about 30%. But if you take that and you factor in all those who've given maybe just once throughout the course of the, this first year, year to date, and, you know, a reasonably, a rather small amount, that number jumps up to a little over 40% who've given perhaps not at all or, or given maybe just once. And I don't know all the financial situations, but that doesn't strike me as a particularly healthy number. It may be just fine, I'm not sure. But as a spiritual shepherd, I thought, well, I'm not sure if that's good or not, so maybe it would be a proper thing to talk about. I also know that less than 1% of our church gives 60% roughly of our budget. So a lot of people are doing, a few people are doing a lot, and that's kind of normal as you get income distribution, but, but there are quite a few people who don't seem either able or don't understand what it would be to give and to support. So I offer again this, not because I'm concerned about the church's bottom line, but because I'm concerned about that day when we all give a stewardship and account to Christ. So why do we give, right? Why do we give? The first little bit that I want to close with. We give because we want to show how great God is. That's why we give. Like when Moses gave up the treasures of this world in order to follow the Lord. He was proclaiming that Christ was more. Right? Just like the man who sold everything to go, to go acquire the pearl of great price. Like that, God is worthy. And our giving magnifies God in that way. But we also give in response because we know God has been generous to us. In the scriptures, Right? Believers always give not out of their poverty, but out of their abundance. The abundance they know in Christ, the abundance they know in the gospel. Because Christ has been rich toward us, we are free to be rich in return with whatever we have. And we also give so that we might reap generously. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give, Paul says, what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we don't give because we want to be materially prosperous. Now, some prosperity teachers will teach that. You give to God so that God can multiply those gifts back to you. That's a false teaching. It's not the teaching of the scriptures. We don't give for earthly rewards, but for the heavenly rewards that are giving by God and his spirit accrues. Rewards that will last. All right, so where should we give? That's one, a few reasons why. Where should we give? We already know we're to give to support our biological family, but we're also called in the scriptures to support our spiritual family. So Galatians 6.6, 6, let the one who is taught the word share, and that's a financial term, all good things with the one who teaches. 
So if the Bible assumes the local church is the primary source of your teaching, it should also be the primary recipient of your giving. If the Bible assumes that the local church is the primary source of your teaching, it should also be the primary recipient of your giving. Because in the New Testament, the local church is the one institution Jesus authorized to represent himself, right? To preach him, to share about him, to baptize in his name, to gather in his name, all of those things. It's where your discipleship is regularly formed and and takes place and takes shape. So it's only logical that your Christian giving, so to speak, would begin here. Now, beyond those obligations to natural family, to the spiritual family of, of the local church, right, there's wonderful opportunity, like wide opportunity beyond that. So you could take some of your money and you could say, I'm going to throw a block party on my street and I'm going to use my money to gather my neighbors. We're going to have a block party and I'm going to hope to make some relationships and I'm going to hope to talk to them about Jesus. That's a great thing to do. You might use some of your resources to be a blessing to a member in need, someone who has a financial need. You might give additional money to support a particular Christian worker that you know, or a local pregnancy center, or someone pursuing adoption or foster care. Those are all great things to do. We have opportunity there. You know, there was a man I used to work with who thought really well about giving. We've talked quite a bit about it. And one of the things he did in his own budget is he worked in a particular line that was just titled encouragement to others, right? He'd already thought through his support of his family and his church. This was sort of excess. He was, he was a faithful steward. And what he would do is he'd just look for opportunities with that line to strategically bless people. And he said, for his wife and him, it was far and away the best part of every month. What could they do with this line item? And I recently found out that they hadn't seen anything for a few months. And then the need of another local pastor that he knew well, that they had sent out, they lost their car, it went kaput. And so he just wrote a check this past week for down payment on a new car. Now, probably most of us can't afford to do that, right? That's not a small check, a down payment on a new car. But what an awesome opportunity to think, okay, how can I, with my own budget, work to strategically be a blessing to others? Maybe it's a little gift card so a couple struggling in their marriage can go get an ice cream and spend some time together and we watch their kids, right? Maybe it's something a bit more. Maybe we send them away for a weekend, whatever it might be. But to think about even having something like that in our own budgets, to give away, to be a blessing, to invest in others. What, it was Winston Churchill who said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Again, I think a lot of folks have common sense wisdom on this. What should we give? At one level, we give everything, right? God owns all we have. We don't just give our money. We give everything we have. Romans 12 We offer our bodies as what living sacrifice is holy and pleasing to God. Colossians 4, make the most of every opportunity. 1 Corinthians 10, whatever we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Now, I think when Christians think about what we're to give, we default to the tithe. We think of Abraham with Melchizedek, and we say 10%, and that's where we go. Now, the reality is, I know most Christians don't do this, but even that number is mistaken. You know, if you know your Old Testament, there are actually three tithes. And if you want to tithe according to the Old Testament, it's 23%. And I won't argue with you. But that notion of 10% is a misnomer, right? And and when you look at the New Testament, the command to a tithe is, is never mentioned. It's never reinforced. Because in the New Testament, we're actually not given a percent. We're given principles. We're not given a percent. We're given principles. And we're going to think about those principles in just a moment. But a percent, what that can do is encourage legalism, right? If we don't hit it, we fear that we're being unfaithful and God's like heavy hand is going to be upon us and we're going to suffer. And that's what we assume. Or if we hit it, we think, oh, great, Scott Free, hit my 10%. God and I are good and everything else is like play money. Or perhaps we wouldn't say that, but we might think that. But we, that's not how we're to look because our giving isn't a duty. In Scripture, our giving is an opportunity to take the temporal money that God has entrusted to us and to invest it in eternal rewards. So I know we got financial advisors in the room, right? We got Bader and Evans and others, but just to be clear, there is no financial product. They could sell you this morning, I don't care how great it is, that could possibly compare with the upside potential when you invest in eternity, when you invest in Christ and his kingdom. Jesus is so clear with that in Matthew 6. And for some of you, you're going to write 
3% of your income, and that 3% is going to be Herculean. You've got kids, they may have medical needs, you have older parents, they're living in your house, maybe you just come out of a season of unemployment, you're kind of behind on bills, nothing's easy, it's all tight. Giving that is a stretch, and you know what? The Lord knows that, and I don't think he takes any lack of delight in what you are doing. It is cheerful, it's sacrificial, you're giving it, you're doing the best you can as a steward. The Lord knows that, he absolutely knows that. Maybe you're a student, you have no income, you don't have any wealth really to give. The Lord knows that. You have other resources, you have time, you have energy, other ways in which you can be a blessing. But I think there are for others for whom, you know, that number could be considerably higher. Could be 20%, could be 30%, I don't know. Because you see, when Jesus fulfilled the law, it's not like he fulfilled the law and revised it downward. Like, I'm gonna lower the bar. I think if anything, Jesus upped it. I mean, given the great blessing we know in Christ, and given the greater disposable income we have as a society, just recognize we are the richest society ever to walk the face of the earth. And you may not feel like that, but we spend less on basic goods and services than any other society in the history of mankind. We can afford, in that sense, to be more generous, to be giving far more than we actually do. I think as a basic practice, one that I followed is I'm going to try to start with 10. I know I'm not required to. Try to start there and then see what I can do. That goes to my local church. See what I can do beyond that. I found that to be a good practice for me personally. Because when we give, one of the things we do is we loose the chains that money wraps around our hearts by making clear that God is sufficient. He's sufficient. And though he may use my money, I don't finally need my money. Right? Each check that we write is our own declaration of independence, not from Britain, but from the tyranny of money. That every time we write a check, we're saying money will not master me. It's not going to enslave me. I'm going to give to that which is eternal. If you know Jim Elliott, the famous missionary, you know his quote, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So how do we give? And I think here Paul's teaching in Corinth is helpful. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. I'll read it. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there will be no collecting when I come. Five quick principles that we're going to close with about how we're to give. It's to be regular. To be regular. Paul says the first day of the week when they meet. Now I don't mean... I don't think that means if you don't get paid every week, you have to give every week necessarily. But the idea that it's regular, it's planned, it's not sporadic or only on special occasions. It's not merely when a bonus check comes or when you're at the end of the month and you're like, oh, what do we have left? And we end up treating God a little bit like the beggar at the corner of a street. We look in our console of our car, we're like, I got a few things, here you go. Like, we don't want to do that with the Lord. We want to be more regular with our giving, disciplined in it. But it's not just being regularly, it's done universally. Paul says... Let each of you, right? It's not just for the wealthy, not just for those who can spare it. You know, if the widow can give the widow's might, Paul assumes that we can all be generous with something, however, quote unquote, small it may be. But it's not just done regularly or universally, it's done systematically. They're to set aside a set amount. It's not whimsical or impulsive. Like, it's planned, this amount. It's got a budget in hand. There is thought, there is strategy behind what is given, which is why, personally, I hate year-end giving campaigns. I loathe them, not because I don't like campaigning and asking for money. I actually don't. I don't know many pastors that do. But I actually think it reinforces bad habits. It teaches you, year-end giving campaigns, when a pastor stands up and says it's budget time, it teaches you to wait until you're asked. It teaches you to do specifically what God has called you not to do, which is to give regularly and systematically, planned, Additionally, it's done proportionally, right? You're to give as he may prosper, verse two. It's not a fixed amount for all, but it's dependent upon how one's been blessed. Paul's assumption in that is that those who've been blessed more should be able to give proportionally more. And it's done freely. He says, there will be no collecting when I come. You know, and this, Paul doesn't resort to guilt and gimmicks. He doesn't fall back to manipulation. He doesn't force them under compulsion, Later, he highlights, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly 
not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Friends, I think those are five things to take note of, to pray about in your own life as you think about supporting the work even of this local church. Giving, your giving, it should be regular, it's universally applicable, it's systematic, it's proportional, and it's done freely. And the first, first Corinthians, the, the Corinthian church possessed wealth much as we do. Right? They had plenty of opportunity to pursue materialism, as do we, self-interest. But Paul calls them to give of themselves for the benefit of others, to give, expect nothing in return, because that's finally what pleases the Lord. I think as we close, this final verse from Proverbs will be helpful for us. I think it's a good job of summing up Scripture's teaching. In Proverbs we read, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. How often do you pray that? Lord, don't give me wealth. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal profaning the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Scripture is remarkably indifferent to the value of money. Right? It can be used for enormous good in this life, right? good that will last until eternity. And yet, as Paul writes to Timothy, the love of money is, as he says, the root of all kinds of evil. Right? Money can be used in both ways. So we need to think about money as a tool. We want to master that tool rather than be mastered by it. Friends, I want you to walk away and think about your own life and recognize money talks. It talks. What you do with your wealth currently says a lot about what or whom you worship. Friends, what does that say about you this morning? Friend, what will it say as you reflect upon some of the teachings of Scripture? What will it say about you? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we pray that in some fashion this teaching would settle upon our hearts and if we need to be convicted, we pray we're convicted by it. If we need to be encouraged that we're being faithful and we have a sensitive conscience and we wondered and we hear and we think, oh, I think I probably am being faithful. Lord, we pray that we'd be encouraged by that. And God, we pray that we would make much of our own stewardship and you would guard us against a lack of contentment. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.